This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Peter called Stand Firm in Grace. Peter, it's toward the end of your Bible, if it's a new book for you. And uh, we are going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. And the verses will be on the screen as well. Listen to the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. Honor and shame are twin themes that run throughout this letter. Honor is something that has always driven human beings, men and women, from every culture on this globe. And some are driven in different ways than others, but everyone is deeply concerned about status, prestige, and standing. I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, C.S. Forrester's books about a character named Horatio Hornblower. What a wonderful name. If any of you are looking for a good baby name, can I commend to you? Horatio Hornblower. And Horatio Hornblower is an acting lieutenant in his Britannic Majesty's Royal Navy at the time of the Napoleonic Wars. And the episode to which I'm referring, Hornblower is captured by the Spanish, and he's languishing in a Spanish prison. And the Spanish commandant of the prison is an honorable man. He says to Horatio, look, sir, you are an officer and a gentleman, and if you give me your word, I will allow you out on a two-hour parole every afternoon. And one rainy, stormy afternoon, Hornblower is pacing along the beach, and he sees a ship that is headed toward the reef. And the Spanish officers gallop up, and they're looking through the telescope, and they realize this ship is about to founder on the reef, and every man on board is going to drown or die of exposure on that rock in the storm. And Horatio Hornblower begs the commander, please let me have some men and I will take a lifeboat lifeboat out there and rescue these desperate sailors. And the commander reminds him of his promise. If you take that lifeboat out, you must return. You're promising on your honor not to escape. 
And Hornblower repeats his promise. He goes off there and at great personal risk takes these men off the rock. But then because of the storm, they're driven out to sea. And the next morning, the sun rises and they see the HMS indefatigable, his own frigate. And he reports on board to his captain. He delivers the rescued sailors. And then he says, I cannot stay. I've made a promise and I need to go back to prison. And the commander, his captain, Edward Edmund Pelou, tries to persuade him. He can't. He's insistent. I'm a man of honor. I must go back to prison because I've made a promise. And you can see the captain looking at him with great respect as he goes back into his boat. The Spanish commander is surprised to, re- to see him again, but gives him great dignity and honor for being this kind of man. And people will go, it's an old-fashioned example, but it serves to show how people will go to great lengths and endure almost anything to receive the respect of honorable people. People will endure anything for a good name. But very few people, almost no one, is capable of enduring Enduring and enduring when they're not receiving honor, when people are not looking at them with awe and respect, but when they are receiving the contempt and scorn of their fellow men. But this is what it means to follow Jesus, to know that the true honor is reserved for those who follow the rejected Savior. Jesus came to this earth to be despised and rejected by men. Not to be esteemed, not to be bowed down to and respected, but to receive scorn and shame and spitting. And this too was the sad and difficult experience of Peter's readers. Christians at that time were called haters of mankind. The Christian religion was considered deeply, deeply antisocial. We don't want these Christians around. They have zero social worth and status. In fact, less than zero because our city, our community would be better off without these people. They don't enjoy the things we do. They seem to look down on us for going to the gladiatorial games and the theater and the races and the brothel, all these things that we love doing. They are bad for business. And you know what? They are really bad for family because our family may have spent generations slowly, painfully clawing our way up the social ladder and in an instant, this person in the family is destroying all of our social capital. And their decision to follow Jesus is not just a decision that is affecting themselves. They are bringing shame on our entire family. And so massive social family pressure must be brought to bear so that these people stop following Jesus. And it was not easy for these early disciples of Christ to persevere in following him when everyone around them was saying, you are a person of shame. Following Jesus meant sacrificing all of your social standing, all of your social status, all of your prestige, that you'd spent a lifetime building up was down the drain because you were calling yourself a follower of Jesus. 
Following Jesus means that we follow him outside the camp, outside the city to the hill of Golgotha and the place of rejection and crucifixion. 1 Peter is all about the path of suffering leading to glory, the path of rejection leading to true and everlasting honor. Now, I have encountered people all through this world from many different cultures with their own strange preferences and tastes. But I have never, ever met anyone who has said, do you know what I love? I love rejection. I love rejection. I just really enjoy when people hate me. Nothing gives me as much pleasure as people looking at me with disgust and contempt. And when I'm by myself, I like to lean back in my chair and just relive those moments when I could really feel that everyone despised me. No one on earth and no culture enjoys rejection. In fact, all of us have a deep-seated fear of being rejected. And here is a message that says, welcome to a world of rejection. You are now going to follow someone who defines himself as the rejected one. This is the path of discipleship. And Peter's job in this letter, he's encouraging men and women and children that he's never met, but he is encouraging them to stay the course. And after year after year after maybe even decade after decade of just gritting their teeth and enduring people feeling contempt and hatred for them, he wants to remind them that there is true honor for those who follow the rejected Jesus. And this passage, in fact, is thick with the presence of Christ. And we could preach a whole sermon today just on his first words, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus. It is this continual coming to Jesus that is the very definition of the Christian life. And perhaps you can remember that moment when you first came to Christ in faith. That was just the first time you came. But again and again, God calls us and invites us, come to Jesus afresh. Come to Christ in the very same way you came at first, with nothing at all in your hands to bring, simply trusting yourself entirely to Jesus. And we come to him not just again and again, but we are gradually and imperceptibly moving closer and closer to Jesus until at last we are face to face with him. And we're coming to this Jesus who is the Lord, who is the source of, of all goodness. If you read Peter, 1 Peter, very carefully, you'll see that in the previous verse, verse 3, he speaks about if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. And that's a citation from Psalm 34, I think. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's Lord with all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh, the I am, who, who the I am who is the I am. And here, if you read closely, Peter is saying that this living God, the source of all goodness, is Jesus Christ himself. When we come to Jesus, we are coming to God himself. 
And Jesus is this living stone, the source of all life, the one who's been resurrected with power from the dead and who has life within himself to give to everyone who touches him. He's a living stone, but he's been rejected by men. Jesus did not fit the blueprint. They were builders, and they were trying to assemble a building, an institution, a house for God, and Jesus came along, and he just did not fit in with what they were planning. The only way Jesus could fit in is if they ripped up their blueprint took everything apart and put him in the bottom, the primary, the foundation place, which they were unwilling to do. And therefore, when he came, the leaders weighed him, they assessed him, they watched him, they listened to him, they observed his miracles, they weighed him up, and they found him wanting. And they decided, we don't want this Messiah. Any other Messiah, but this Jesus of Nazareth. He is going to ruin everything. And it's better, as the high priest said, that one man should die for the sake of the people. He does not fit into our building. We reject him. We're going to put him to the side. We do not want him. In fact, we want him dead and out of the way. And this was very difficult for Peter and the rest of the 12 to accept. That Jesus, as he foretold, would be rejected, handed over, and crucified. This is what Christ came to do. And Peter and the twelve and his readers and Christians down through the ages have discovered that the message of Christ, the announcement that Jesus is Savior and Lord, does not meet with universal acceptance. And the very people who were drowning and lost reject the one who was sent to save them. And we ourselves, if we are faithful to Jesus, experience and walk in his own rejection. And yet, though he is rejected by men, Peter says, in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. Precious is not the best translation here. The word really means honored. Jesus may well be rejected by men, There may be no place found for him in human plans. But in the sight of God, which is the only sight that matters, Jesus is chosen. From before the foundation of the world, God's plan has always been, his unshakable plan has always been that he would build everything on Jesus. And in the end, which assessment will stand? Will it be the assessment of unbelieving men and women, or will it be the word of God? And here we are, we come to this Jesus, rejected by men, in the sight of God, chosen and honored. And as we come to him, as we continually approach Jesus, as we are doing this afternoon, we discover that something is happening to us. Something is happening to us. Even as we're sitting here, receiving this message The Spirit of God is doing something. Because what we cannot see with the eye of the flesh, but perhaps can perceive with the eye of faith, is that God is present here and he's building us up. There is a construction 
projects going on, and God is building us up like living stones ourselves. Christ is the living stone, and our own nature derives from Christ. We, too, are living stones. We're just small versions of what Jesus is, Christians, little Christs. And we're not dead, inert, cold objects. We are alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, somehow, we are stones. And I love that image of being a stone because it means that God has a purpose and a place for all of us. You know, stones are not bricks. Bricks, you can mass-produce them. They all look basically the same. And they're probably a lot easier to work with. I don't imagine it would take much training to become a bricklayer. You know, you could probably build a little barbecue or something with some bricks after watching a few YouTube videos or maybe having someone teach you quickly. But it would take a lot of training to become a stonemason. Being a stonemason takes great skill because you've got all these different stones you're dealing with and you have to carefully select how they fit together. And it speaks, doesn't it, how God is not mass-producing people who all look the same, but even in this congregation today, we have some very, very different people. There are some very odd men and women in God's kingdom. Some of you are very odd indeed. And yet, in God's plan, you will fit perfectly into the place that God has always had for you. Now, there is some chiseling involved. There was a lot of scraping and sanding and knocking about. There's a lot of dust and noise, but God has a plan into which you fit perfectly. But notice the stone only has a place and a purpose with the other stones. A stone is not very useful lying in the middle of a field or even thrown into a pile with other stones. These stones have to be built together. And that's where the presence of God, this house of God, comes. As these stones are carefully placed, connected to each other, the right one beside the one that perfectly fits it, in this interlocking pattern, and then this house for God rises. You cannot make a house out of a single stone. The presence of God only happens when we are built together, and this is what God is very very patiently doing. There's something else I found deeply, I find deeply encouraging about this imagery of being stones built into God's house. God is a God of massive hospitality, but all of us doubt whether God truly welcomes us into his home. And if I had you over, you may after a certain time feel like your time has run out. I'm not really sure if Bart and Michelle still want us in their home. And we could do a lot of things. No, please, please stay. Please stay. Stay for dinner. We'd love to have you. Stay overnight. After a while, you'd feel like you were wearing out your welcome. But if we strapped you to the wall and then took out some cement and actually cemented you into the wall... I mean, that would raise a lot of questions, but it would deal with one question permanently, whether we really want you in our home. God really, really wants you in his house, so much that he is actually cementing you into the very 
wall of his dwelling place. Something glorious is happening, and God has a role for you to play, a role that only you can play. He really wants us all to be part of his house. And notice, of course, that this is all passive. The stones do not build the house. We are being built. Something is happening to us. And it's not up to us to drop the blueprint, to get the planning permission, to move things about. God is the one that is lifting each of us into position. It's God's plan that is happening. And therefore, there is something, something glorious is occurring. And what seems like a lot of rubble and junk on the ground is slowly rising into a dwelling place for God by his spirit, as Ephesians 2 talks about. It's a place that God wants to live in. Now, God's house is already pretty good. I understand heaven is pretty much right up there when it comes to great places to live. But you know what? That is not God's permanent home. His boxes are packed. He has a date on his calendar when he's going to move out and he's going to move into the people of God permanently. And God's plan from the very, very beginning, all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, has been this. I am going to make my dwelling place with these people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And there is no greater privilege for the people of God than to be a people of God's presence, where he lives, he makes his home. He doesn't just come to visit. It's his permanent dwelling place. And then, and here Peter starts to mix his metaphors a little bit. He's not slavishly tied to this image of stones because he speaks of us offering spiritual sacrifices to God in this spiritual house. And spiritual here does not mean non-physical, non-material. It means of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in most places in the New Testament where you find this word spiritual, you could put a capital S there, belonging to the realm of the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, you and I continually get to offer sacrifices to God. And these are not bloody sacrifices of atonement that pay for our sins. These are sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving as we offer our whole selves to God. And notice Peter is very careful to say that these are sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. At our very best, our highest and noblest sacrifices are acceptable and only acceptable to God through what Jesus, our great high priest, has done. And however mature we become, to whatever standard of perfection we achieve, we will never grow beyond our need for Jesus. And because of Jesus, what we bring to God, our whole lives, our behavior filled with the Holy Spirit offered to him, God is pleased with it, and he welcomes it, and he accepts it. That is very good news this afternoon. Well, we move on in our text. We don't have time to linger on all these great truths because Peter goes on to say, it stands in Scripture. And then in the rest of this passage, Peter quotes to or alludes to no less than six different Old Testament references. He goes to Exodus, he goes to Psalms, he goes to Isaiah, and he goes to Hosea. 
And first of all, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And if you go and read in Isaiah chapter 28, the context is the people of Israel are under military threat. And they're scrambling to look for alliances that will keep them secure against these other superpowers that are arrayed against them. And they decide they're going to make an alliance with what is now basically the pagan kingdom of Israel in the north and Egypt to the south. And they say, we're making a covenant with death. We're going to make a covenant with death because nothing is stronger than death. And if we have death, if we have these enemy nations on our side, we can ride this thing out. We will be secure. And God, through Isaiah, says to them, hail is going to sweep away this refuge of lies and waters are going to overwhelm your shelter. Your covenant with death is going to be annulled. It's not strong enough. It's not going to keep you through. There's one thing that you can trust in and it's what God is doing. He's going to lay a cornerstone in Zion, something so strong and so solid that if you rest yourself on it, if you entrust yourself completely to this cornerstone, you will not be put to shame. And being put to shame was the great fear, not a private embarrassment, but public disgrace, humiliation, ridicule. When everything you have lived your entire life for falls apart, and fails you. But there is a cornerstone. And if you rest yourself on this cornerstone, God is saying to Israel at this time, even though the rain falls and the floods come and the winds blow and beat on your house, it will not fall because it is going to be built on the rock. And already in the time of Jesus, the Jews understood this cornerstone is some great king that God is sending. We're not going to trust in a him, in an it, but in a him, in a person, a Messiah that God is going to send. And then in verse 7, Peter goes on to say, the honor is for you who believe. Now, your translation might say something different. The NIV and other translations say, for those who believe, Christ is precious which is true. It's gloriously true, but it's not what Peter is saying, as most commentators agree. The honor is for you who believe. There is this possibility of shame, of everything falling apart, but if you attach yourself to the cornerstone, if you build upon him, instead of shame, you're going to share in his honor, in his vindication. But that's not for everybody, only those who build on this cornerstone. Because Peter goes on now, quoting from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And if you're with us through our Mark series, you might remember Jesus himself quoting this verse from Psalm 118 and telling the parable of the wicked tenants of the vineyard. Do you remember that story in Mark chapter 12? These tenants had received a vineyard and they decided, you know what? We're not going to give our rent. We're not going to give the fruit of the vineyard. And the servants come and they kill them. And then the son comes to the vineyard and they say, you know what? This is our big chance. If we kill the son, we can keep the vineyard for ourselves. And then Jesus quotes this verse. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
Jesus was crucified, but that was not the end of his story. Rejection and shame and spitting are not all that was true about Jesus because three days later, God raised him from the dead, a story in which we also share. And so these people might have rejected Jesus. They might have decided they were not going to entrust themselves to him. But their rejection did not cancel God's choice of Jesus. Jesus is chosen by God, not voted in by men and women, chosen by God. And in the end, that is the only thing that matters. And God has decided that Jesus is going to be the cornerstone. Jesus is going to be the thing that God builds everything upon, all of reality. In Christ, God is going to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And it's up to you to decide whether you're going to ally yourself with him or not. Jesus is the cornerstone. Cornerstones must be massive and strong to bear the weight of this heavy stone structure resting upon it. And Jesus is the only thing, the only person strong enough to bear the whole weight of the church of God. And a cornerstone must be straight in both planes, horizontally and vertically, so that the walls don't go out of alignment and the whole building topples in upon itself. And Jesus is the only thing true enough to bring the order and beauty of God's plan, not just for the church, but for all of reality. Jesus is the one essential thing in the church of God. I may be a living stone, but I am not indispensable. Graveyards are filled with indispensable men and women, or at least men and women who thought they were indispensable. But there is one person who is indispensable to the church of God, and that is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Some of us may be very skilled Jenga players where we can just yank out that little block in there and the whole thing, instead of falling over, lands straight down. But you cannot remove Jesus from the church without the whole structure collapsing. Jesus is the point at which humanity divides. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. And all of us, at one point or another, encounter this stone. And we have a choice. We can build our entire lives upon him, or we can trip over him. It is not possible just to step over Christ and go along our way. Jesus is salvation, but he is also disaster. Jesus is salvation, but he is also disaster. And when we reject Jesus, we're not determining his fate. We are determining our own fate. There are many ways to divide the human race, men and women, black and white, rich and poor, uneducated, educated. But in the end, according to Peter, humanity is divided into two streams, those who believe on Jesus and those who do not believe. That is the great choice that determines everyone's eternal destiny. And it is a terrible thing to stumble over Jesus to be offended and scandalized at him. It is not a fall you can recover from. Imagine yourself wandering on a dark mountainside in the middle of the night, 
moving along some little goat path on the edge of a precipice, and your ankle catches on a great rock in the middle of the path. That stumbling, that tripping is going to mean death, and that is the future for everyone who rejects the one that God has chosen. And Peter makes it clear that they stumble because they disobey the word of God as they were destined to do. The stumbling happens because they disobey. And for Peter, as for many of the New Testament writers, disobeying the word of God is the same as unbelief. The invitation to faith is also a command to believe. God is commanding all men and women everywhere to repent. It's not an option that God says, you may freely choose whether to accept or not to accept. It makes no difference to me. People are commanded to believe in Jesus, and not to believe in him is rebellion against God. That is how determined God is for people to come to faith in Jesus. And what is striking about this verse, of course, is that parenthetical remark, they stumble because as they were destined to do. As they were destined to do. And I'm afraid that little remark there of Peter's may make a wreckage of your nice, neat theology because, of course, we would all prefer, Peter said, they stumble because they disobey the word as they chose to do, which is true also, but not what Peter says here. Somehow, Peter is saying, even those who reject Jesus who stumble, who disobey, who do not believe, somehow in a mysterious way, that too is part of God's divine plan. And as so often happens in the New Testament, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are there right next to each other. And different theologies want to pick or choose which of those they hold on to and make absolute, but always those two things happen together. They stumble, A, because they disobey the word, and B, because they were destined to do so. Both those things somehow hold together. And of course, most famously in the New Testament is Peter's speech at Pentecost, where he says, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Somehow, in Jesus' own story of rejection, is both wicked men at work, planning and scheming and betraying, And somehow behind that, this great plan of God for his son. Now, Peter mentions this not for abstract academic debate in an air-conditioned university library, for a bunch of guys at Bible college to talk about in their dorm after hours. That is never what these things in the New Testament are for. Here, Peter is bringing out this truth as a source of deep comfort to these beleaguered, shamed, and contemptible Christians. Do you know what? People are rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting the gospel. This is no surprise to God. Somehow, this has always been part of the plan of God. I was just in the UK for five or six days at a, at a conference and the conference put me up with a homestay at this very nice home in the village of West Dulwich. There's this gorgeous college in the town from 1608, and it is a very upscale kind of place. And I stayed with quite a genteel Anglican lady, and she gave me a key to her house. She said, I'm not going to be home tonight. Here's the key. You can let yourself in. 
And so I took the train down. I figured how to get there. I walked across this gorgeous park, up the driveway into her house in this beautiful, elegant neighborhood. I unlocked the door. I turned the handle. And as I swung the door open, I heard beep, 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 beep. She had not told me about the alarm. And I thought, oh, no. And then, and this alarm mounted outside the house on the second story just started blaring and filling the entire, entire neighborhood. And there are some cars that can accelerate extremely quickly, none that could have accelerated as fast as my own stress level did in that moment. I had to go to the bathroom really badly, and somehow my bladder was like, no, I'm fine, just take care of this massive amount of stress that you are experiencing. And I felt just blood rushing to my face, sweat breaking out all over my body as I'm desperately trying to figure out how on earth am I going to get this alarm turned off. And people are walking past, they're, they're peering into the driveway, this like, little old lady with her dog tottered forward to confront this foreign criminal breaking into the house. And this alarm went on for half an hour. It was just horrible. And my stress level, my panic was at an enormous level. God is not like that. There is nothing that takes God by surprise. His blood pressure never rises. Beads of sweat don't suddenly break out on his forehead when someone fails to come to faith in Jesus. There is nothing in this world that happens that is not foreseen and that is not destined in the plan of God. He never, ever panics. And there may be things that happen in the church and in the world that cause us to panic and to feel deeply anxious. And we are tempted to reach out our hands and steady the ark of God. Very bad idea if you've read the Old Testament. Things do not turn out well for those who lay their hand on the ark of God. God can take care of his own ark. He can take care of his own temple, of his own building projects. We don't have to panic. So this is the fate of those who reject Jesus. But thank God that is not the case for those of us who have put all of our trust in Christ. Because Peter goes on to lay out this string of honorable, noble titles for the people of God. In verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These are all titles of great honor and dignity. And in fact, they come from the book of Exodus. It's too bad Jessie's not here today because she loves the book of Exodus. And there is actually so much gospel in that book if you read it through the lens of Christ. Exodus chapter 19. You can turn there if you have your Bible. So here's Moses. The people of Israel are encamped before the mountain, before Sinai, and Moses goes up to God. And then in verse 3, the Lord calls to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Yeah, they were right there when the people of Egypt were swept into the Red Sea. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, Peter has just lifted that right out of the book of Exodus. 
What that tells us, that account in Exodus, what it underlines for us is this, that God's salvation always comes first. God's deliverance, God's redemption, God's mighty hand and outstretched arm comes first, and then it leads to this noble calling. The calling doesn't come first. God didn't say, okay, Israel, I'm putting you guys on probation. If, after 400 years, you faithfully observe this calling to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood, then deliverance will happen. In fact, as God very well knows, the people of Israel are going to fail miserably in this task. The salvation comes first to a people who do not deserve it. God hears their piteous cries, and he rescues them. And then the salvation leads to a noble and a high calling. And the calling is not, by the way, a payment after the fact. God is not saying, okay, I have done all this stuff for you guys, and now is your time to pay back a little to me. Not at all. In fact, this is another dimension, a higher level of salvation. God isn't just rescuing them from slavery and bringing them to the promised land there to dump them and leave them to their own devices. They are being saved for something, this huge and massive calling to be a special people to minister the presence of God. And notice, incidentally, both in Exodus and in 1 Peter, all of these are collective nouns. There's nothing individual about what God is calling the people of God to. They are a race, a nation, a priesthood, a people. You cannot be any of those things by yourself. It's what we are together, called to be a holy priesthood for the service of God. And of course, while priests do have this immense privilege of going into the temple and experiencing the presence of God in a special way, priests always exist for those outside. Israel existed not for her own enjoyment of God, but to bring all the nations into the presence of God. The Lord blessed Abraham so that he would be a blessing to all of the nations. And so God has not saved us and given us a high calling for our own private enjoyment, for our own like, nice, personal, quiet times where we can just feel really good about ourselves. God has called us for the sake of those outside. And in fact, our calling is to proclaim the excellencies of God. As he goes on to say, you, all this has happened, that, your purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the ultimate goal of the church, the single purpose of the people of God, is to say, how great is our God. How great is our God. We do not exist for ourselves ultimately. We do not even exist for the world ultimately. We exist for the worship of God. But this worship is meant to be public, to proclaim. It's a public announcement. It's turning on the bullhorn and announcing in the marketplace, this is our God who is awesome and excellent. There is a strong link between missions and evangelism and worship and praise. C.S. Lewis, in his Reflections on the Psalms, says this, All enjoyment spontaneously flows into praise. When you really enjoy something, when you really love something, you cannot help overflowing into praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside. 
Players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, sometimes even politicians and scholars. We cannot help praising those things that we love. And so the true secret is really no secret at all. The true secret of evangelism is this, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. People cannot be guilted into effective evangelism. People cannot be bullied into sharing the gospel in any really effective kind of way. It's only when our hearts are filled with the love of God and just sheer enjoyment of his power and his presence and his kindness, then that overflows into sharing with others. And so our very evangelism is worship. When we're sharing the gospel with someone else, we have to remind ourselves, this is a time of worship for me. Let me enjoy God even as I'm sharing the gospel with this person, as I'm saying, come with me and praise my great God. What we're praising God for is this. He has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And here we have personal enjoyment and involvement and investment in what God has done. We're not praising God for some abstract and academically interesting qualities that he might have. We're praising him for this. God has brought me out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a horrible thing to sit in darkness for a long time. Remember those those Chilean miners a number of years ago who were stuck underground? Something had caved in and they were stuck underground for weeks and weeks. And it might have been up to a month cramped in the darkness in the stifling air. And eventually... A tiny shaft was drilled down, and they were able to lower food and water and a walkie-talkie. Then the shaft was widened, and they lowered a cage, and the first miner was brought to the surface, to the overpowering sunshine up above. And it's a picture of what God has done for all of us, brought us out of darkness and death into the sunshine of his presence. And our task, as soon as we regain our strength, is to help with the rope, to help lower in that little cage, to speak through the walkie-talkie to those down below. Don't give up hope. There is light. Climb into the cage and come to the surface with us. Wow, so much in this glorious passage. But Peter concludes with this, these words of, that are deeply humbling, in fact. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Verse 10. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And these words are especially profound when you realize they come from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Man, what a searing book that is, where the prophet is commanded to marry Gomer, a prostitute, to enact in his own life what it is like for God to be in covenant with his unfaithful, idolatrous, adulterous people, Israel. And Gomer has a daughter. Hosea can't even be sure this is his own daughter, but he's commanded by God, name your daughter this, no mercy. And then Gomer has a son, and God says, name your son this, not my people, because God is finally rejecting his people. But it's as though God cannot help himself. His mercy and his loyalty and his grace to the ungrateful and disgraced is so strong that God quickly goes on to say this, I am going to have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, 
you are my God. D.A. Carson says, the Israelites have broken the covenant so badly that God declares they're no longer his. And then he goes ahead and shows mercy to them anyway. It's a humbling conclusion to this passage that God bestows honor as a gift on those who have acted shamefully. Grace is given to the disgraceful. And so as we meditate on the incredible privilege of being part of the people of God, there is no room left for gloating that we are part of the in-group. We can look with pleasure on those who are outside and who do not belong and feel smug and superior to them. There is no room at all for self-congratulation. It is just the sheer mercy of God. And if we are chosen and precious and honorable, and we are, it's only because we are in Christ and we've built upon the cornerstone. This world is not becoming any friendlier to those who follow Jesus. And shame is used as a means of social control. And so many countries and cultures in this world, and I'm guessing probably the one that you belong to as well, shame as a means of social control. And there's persecution perhaps coming, but even more powerful than persecution, shame, contempt, humiliation, mocking. And we're all called to endure this, and that may become increasingly a burden in the years ahead. But we need to remember this. Jesus went through all of this before us. He endured the shame of the cross, and he broke its power. And now he's exalted to the right hand of God. And so there is true honor. Things are going to be turned right side up at last and forever. And that true honor is for those who identify now with the rejected Jesus. So brothers and sisters, we need each other. We need this community to remind each other we belong to God, to remind each other of our true identity, our true calling, and our true destiny, to remind one another God's assessment will stand. Let us seek the praise that comes from God and not from men. Let's pray and ask for grace, because if ever we needed grace, it is for these things. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.